I'm teaching in the sanctuary tonight on the God of second chances, and I'm going to be talking about a Bible character that you would not normally think of as God giving second chances to, but he he, uh, fell short again and again and again and again, and God kept using him and using him, and he's actually one of the most famous characters in the Bible, one of the greatest men of God in the scriptures, yet he failed over and over and over again. So we're going to be talking about him, and uh, in a roundabout way, we're going to encourage ourselves. God is a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chance. Has God ever given you a second chance? We'll talk about what a second chance is and how God is a God of second chance. We'll look at a Bible character. I'll even share some stories of how God gave me a second chance. Boy, have I blown it through the years and don't say anything. <laughs> Anyways, but I'll be teaching here tonight and uh, it'll be a blessing for you. That sound good? I think that sounds good. Anyway, they're passing out uh, the outline to this message. A lot of verses tonight, a lot of scripture. I want some interaction from you as well. I want you to be thinking about characters in the Bible that God gave a second chance to. Some will come instantly. Others, maybe you would think about it. And maybe the time that God gave you a second chance. But it tells us in Proverbs 24, verse 16. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. So there's a difference between a righteous man and a wicked man. A righteous man would be a a man of faith. A man or woman of faith will look at man as mankind, generic sense. A man or woman of God, a person of faith, will look at as a believer. The Bible says a righteous man may fall seven times, and seven is an important number in the scriptures. It has the idea of completeness or totality. So we're talking about more than just fall seven times, but it's uh, a righteous man fall, may fall many, many times, many, many times. Why do we know that? Because, uh, you know, but the disciples said, how often should we forgive somebody? And, you know, seven times? And the disciples asked Jesus that in the gospel, seven times, Lord? And they were being magnanimous because the Pharisees taught three times. If somebody sins against you, you forgive them three times. So they're being magnanimous. Seven times, Lord. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. Well, if the Lord asks us to forgive those who trespass against us or offend us 70 times seven, how much more gracious is our Heavenly Father, our forgiving Heavenly Father, how many times he needs to forgive us? It tells us in Psalm 37, 23 and 24, the steps of a good man, now that good man is a righteous man, a believer, are ordered by the Lord, and he, the Lord, delights in his way. Of course he does. He loves to look down and see us walking in his path, walking after his leading, walking in his plan, right? He delights in that. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him With his hand. So the righteous, when they do fall, when there is failure, the scripture says the Lord upholds. We rise up. A righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, not by our own efforts. It's really the Lord encourages us, the Lord lifts us up. (laughs) The Lord says, Get up, stand to your feet, and He empowers us to do that. Now, God has given me second chances. I've shared some of these through the years. The very first building program we went through, 
the Lord gave me a second chance on that. Our very first building program was what is now uh, the Kids on the Rock and the Fellowship Hall. The Kids on the Rock was the very first sanctuary we built and the Fellowship Hall there. That was our first building program, and uh, we were a very small church. We had a little tiny building on the corner there, and uh, uh, it didn't take long to outgrow it. I think there was six pews on one side and eight pews on the other side, and uh, the pews were shorter than this front pew. So, you know, I had a burgeoning ministry. I filled up about 12 pews. (laughs) And uh, so we needed a building program. And uh, I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart uh, to do it debt-free. Thank you, Lorna Heffelbauer, for that one. And uh, the Lord used her to speak that to my heart, that we were to do it debt-free. So we, we didn't have a very big congregation. I'm all of 29 years old. And we launch into this building program, of which I have absolutely no experience leading a building program, casting vision for a building program. I had no experience in a stewardship campaign. You know, uh, they have all this stewardship campaigns now, and you got all this help that's out there. But back in the in the 80s, uh, there wasn't a lot of help. I wasn't aware of that help, didn't know where to look for it. And so really, I was just uh, obeying God and doing it. And uh, there's a lot to be said to obeying God and simply doing it. And the Lord is with you, right? But uh, the problem is, is I, I got my eyes off the Lord and on people. And this, since we're doing it ourselves, the building program was last, I think it took us 14 months. And it was 10,000 square feet. And it cost us Turnkey bid was $500,000. We did a lot of the work ourselves. So we saved approximately 50%. So it cost us about $250,000, which with a little tiny church, uh, that was a lot of money. And boy, every night I'd go to bed and I'd just work the finances, work the finances. Okay, we got this much money and this much money is coming in and we need to raise some money and this is what it's going to cost. And uh, the work never grinded to a halt as we had to wait on more money to come in. We always had money to keep it going, but it just took seemingly a long time. And I worked on it uh, Tuesday night, Thursday night, and Saturdays. Of course, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night services. Anyway, I was busy, and uh, the workload fell on just what I would say a few of us. Brother Dave Wig, there you are. You were a faithful servant in the house. He was out there every time I was out there, and uh, we just did it. We did it. But I got my eyes off the Lord on the people. They disappointed me, and uh, through it, I, I got this like a bad heart. And Lord had, I had to work through this bad heart, you know, kind of was offended. Why aren't they out here? And, you know, all this. I'll tell you how we raised the money. For those of you that are new to this church, there wasn't a stewardship campaign where you pledge this or that or this or that. Uh, I, uh, three times in the 14 months, I asked the people when they came to church on a Sunday to give 90% of their income and to live off 10. I reversed the tithe principle. And at the time, this tells you how small our church was, our church averaged about $3,000 a Sunday in our giving, $3,000. So if 90% is given in, they, uh, a whopping total of $27,000 will come in. And sure enough, our very first 90-10, we had $27,000. I think the second time we did it, it was $25,000. And the third time, I think it was $22,000. But I did three 90-10s. And that's how we raised the money with their regular giving to build that church, to raise $250,000 to get into a debt-free. 
Well, we got into it. The fellowship hall wasn't done. We got into it, and there was like $1,200 left in the checking account. And uh, I remember sitting around the table with, with, uh, with the board that I had at the time, and uh, we saw that our money had dwindled down to $1,200. We still had to complete the fellowship hall. We're occupying it, and we just encouraged ourselves to believe God. But, uh, you know, I had to find God in that. I had to work through, uh, you know, an offended spirit because the people weren't there for me. And uh, a number of years went by. So we got into it in 1988. And then in 1994, uh, we did our educational wing, which would be the offices and then uh, that education wing, which is our children's wing. And uh, so was it, 88, 94, that's six years later. And I said, Lord, I'm going to do this. Can you, can you please give me a second chance on a building program? And Lord, it's my pledge to you that I will keep my eyes off people, that I'll go through it with a better heart, that I won't feel like I have failed in this on the inside. And sure enough, the Lord enabled me to lead us in a second building program. And uh, with the Lord's help and by God's grace, I pretty much kept my eyes off people. There's a couple times that I was slipping up, but the Lord would correct me, and I was determined with the help of God. And God gave me a second chance. God gave me a second chance. And he'll do that, won't, won't he? And, uh, you know, if you, if you fail the test, uh, like in school, you'll have to retake that test, right? It just seems to be the way the Lord works in us. If you fail the test, he brings that test around again and again and again until finally by faith through obedience with the right, you pass the test. And then there's a period of of victory and, and eating the fruit of that. And then a certain time passes and then God takes you through another testing of your faith to strengthen you. And you, you got to learn to pass that test as well. Second chances. I'll give you another story on a second chance. Uh, Second chance on a mission trip. Uh, My wife and I went to Armenia a number of years ago. Dale Yurton asked uh, my wife and I to go and to team teach with them. Now, Dale Yurton is a wonderful man of God, one of the greatest men of God I know. And uh, this was an opportunity to go to a former Soviet Union bloc nation, Armenia. And the gospel was open. uh, And uh, we went and... Uh, when we were there, the, they went at, at, a, at a religious holiday time, and so uh, all the hotels were all booked up, and so we had to rent this house. And so there was my wife and myself, Adele Yurton was there, uh, Rick Clendenin, uh, many of you know him, he was there, and then a couple extra women uh, were also there, and then Bobby Mills and Wanda Mills. So there's a, uh, there's a house full, eight or nine of us were in this house, and my wife and I had a little tiny room uh, that didn't have air conditioning, and it's right on the busy street, and so that was aggravating me. And then the missionary that we went with, uh, he didn't, wasn't taking care of us, I felt, at the level that he should. We're always running out of water, and all we had to eat was baloney. And uh, so that was a bummer. And then I got terribly sick at the end of that trip. I mean, as sick as I've ever been. Rick Clinton got it at the exact same time I did. And uh, we, we, we would tell horror stories uh, together about how sick we were. I felt like I was going to die. 
I was that sick. I'm going to die in this former communist nation far from home. I mean, I was so sick. Oh, my gosh. Well, I recovered enough to get on the flight and fly from Armenia to England, England to Detroit. Oh, the trip home was something. I would just sit there. And remember, I'd look back, and Rick Clendenin was about six rows back on the other side of the plane. I'd look back at him, and he'd just look at me and just go, <laughs> oh, we were sick. But I, when I got home, I felt like I didn't do good on that trip. I felt like I got cranky. And I got sick, and I didn't feel like uh, I, I overcame like I should have. And so I prayed. I said, Lord, can you have the missionary, Bobby Mills, extend another invitation to me? Because I want to go back with your help, and I want to have a better trip to Armenia than I did this time. You know what? He asked me to go back the next year. My wife and I went, and uh, we overcame. We had a wonderful time. And at the end of that trip, I said, oh, Lord, thank you. You gave me a second chance to do better. God loves to do that. He loves to do that. Praise the Lord. What Bible characters that you can think of were given a second chance? Let's get some. You can just shout it out. Yes, Chris. Peter was given a second chance. Yes, he was. You know, he denied the Lord, right? Who else? Go ahead, Shalin. Jonah. Yeah, listen what it says in Jonah chapter 3. I had this one down. You didn't read that in the notes and come up with it. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Second chance, Jonah, you know. God didn't change his message. God didn't change his command, God didn't change his plan because Jonah, you know, he didn't like it, so he rebelled, tried to run from it. So God didn't say, oh, okay, then uh, I'll just change it so you like it. No, God said, you go back, go back to that same city with the message I gave you. You got to pass this test, but God was merciful to Jonah. Can you think of anybody else? Excuse me? Samson was giving lots of chances. Who else? Joshua, did somebody say Joshua? Yeah, Joshua, the battle of Ai. The battle of Ai. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. Yes, they 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 hid the the the. I'm trying to think. You know, I'm thinking uh, the 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 Gibeonites. Didn't they come? And uh, he didn't inquire of the Lord. It made a peace pact with them. That was a failure. Also with Ai, Achan had hid it, and so the Lord's hand, the blessing. That's very good. And somebody else said, David. Yes, absolutely. Bathsheba, that's the famous one, right? David and Bathsheba. David had more failures than that. Yes, Shalint. Moses. Well, Moses killed the woman. Uh, killed the Egyptian soldier, right? Killed the Egyptian. And Moses also smote the rock twice. And God let him see the land from the mountaintop. He was merciful to him there. Yeah, so you see there's all kinds of people in the scriptures. I think I just pre- preached through the book of Ruth. And I think of Naomi. And uh, man, the Lord redeemed her. And she was a believer. 
She left Bethlehem, Judah, the house of bread and praise, went to the land of Moab and came back all bitter and was given bad advice to Ruth. And by the end of the book, she's given Ruth godly advice and God redeemed her life. God is a God of second chances. I think about Jeremiah. I have this down in your notes. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. So Jeremiah, he's a prophet that God's given words to. And Jeremiah says, you know, every time I give a word, the, the thinking behind this is he's persecuted and rejected for it. So he decides, that's it. I'm no longer speaking. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. You know, God used him still. God really worked in him a second chance. He caused his word to burn in his heart. You know, okay, you think you're not going to speak anymore? You kind of made that promise, I'm not going to speak in your name anymore. I'm going to hide this thing or shut my mouth. It gets him into trouble, and God just burned that word in his heart. He says, I'm not done with you. Even though you're saying that out of, out of fear and maybe disappointment or discouragement, I'm not done with you. I'm still going to burn my word in your heart and motivate you by my spirit. And you're still my prophet. And even though you don't want to speak, I'm still going to use you and you're still going to speak. God has second chances. Praise the Lord. What does it mean to be given a second chance? It means that God forgives you. That God restores his relationship with you. It means that God will give you another opportunity for obedience. I think about that in the first building program and that trip to Armenia. It means that God will use you again. Somebody had mentioned David. And he wrote Psalm 51 out of his, after his adultery. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And God gave David a second chance. Many chances. When I say God is a God of second chances, maybe it's a better way to say God is a God of multiple chances. A multitude of chances. Again and again and again. And so the one I want to look at, and I think somebody mentioned that, that needed uh, second chances, many of them, is the Apostle Paul. Now, you don't think that he did, but he did, and we'll get into it. I, I, I picked out three instances in the book of Acts. Now, I always give Paul the benefit of the doubt because I think he was just a great man of God. And in these three instances, many ministers believe that the Apostle Paul had failure. I tend to think that he didn't. But I want to just share these three with you. But then I'm going to get into Romans chapter 7, and we're going to talk about how the Apostle Paul... Uh, sinned over and over and over again, and God forgave him. I'm talking about personal sin on the inside of his heart, maybe with his thoughts, maybe with his attitude, maybe with his words. He doesn't totally say, but in Romans chapter 7, he paints this picture that, man, he had a real struggle in his life. And you know what? So do we. So do we. So, these possible failures in the ministry, the first one is found in Acts 15, 37 to 39. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, 
But Paul insisted, so one's determined, the other's insisting. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted one from another. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and began his second missionary journey. Was Paul too harsh? You know, the pastor I got saved under said no. I mean, he, he believed the apostle Paul was right. John Mark needed to prove himself. He was undependable. He had deserted them. You know, he, he left early. He's not ready to take again. It just won't work out. And then I remember I heard a message from Chuck Swindoll. Anybody know Charles Swindoll? And he believed the Apostle Paul was too harsh. They should have been more forgiving. Should have been more favorable to John Mark. John Mark was a young man. Should have given him another opportunity, a second chance. And he was too harsh. What do you think? What do you think? How many think that the Apostle Paul was right in not taking John Mark? Raise your hand. Just a few. How many think he was too harsh? Raise your hand. So more of you think he was, that's really interesting. All right, those of you that raised your hand, you can leave now, all right? Just leave. All right, let's take a look at another one. Acts chapter 20. He's ministering to the elders at Ephesus. For I know this, he says to them, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul is telling them that when he leaves them, savage wolves are going to come in and, and men are going to rise up and draw disciples after themselves. But I'm out of here. You know, a lot of pastors think he should have stayed. Could have spared the church at Ephesus. Should have been the shepherd over that church. Stay there. If you see it happening, you can, you can stop it. Well, some other people say, no, he was right. He, he was being led by God to, to sail to Jerusalem. Because God had an appointment with him in Jerusalem. So he was right to leave because he being led by the Spirit. And he's giving them a warning. Was he too negligent? Or was he being led of the Spirit? Was this a mistake? Quite possibly it was a mistake. James Beale, pastor, great pastor of Bethesda Christian Church, believed the Apostle Paul made a big mistake here. Pastor I got saved under said, no, he was right in this. He was warning them. You know, so you get different sides of it. And, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't clearly come out and say, now the Apostle Paul was wrong in this. But it's painting this picture, right? He's giving them warning. And yet he was the founding pastor of that church at Ephesus. And if he sees all this calamity coming after he leaves, maybe he should have stayed. How many thinks he made a mistake? Raise your hand. Nobody. No, did you raise your hand? Okay, very good. It's okay if you did. All right, one more, one more. Acts 21. <laughs> it's okay if you did, but you're wrong. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> Acts 21. And so this prophet comes and tells the apostle Paul 
that bonds await him if he goes to Jerusalem. And they're all telling him, don't go, don't go. It's like this warning. When he come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happened. Now, when, he heard, when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't go. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, the will of the Lord be done. Was he stubborn? Too stubborn? I mean, God sends a prophet to tell him. And then everybody joins in that, says, don't go, don't go. The Lord would say, don't go, don't go. And he's there, I'm going. I'm ready to die. I'm going. And sure enough, he went to Jerusalem. He didn't die in Jerusalem, but he did go to Jerusalem, and he was arrested. And out of that arrest, he was sent on a boat to Rome to stand before Nero, who eventually beheaded him. Hmm. Mistake? Led of the Holy Spirit? What do you think? How many believe it was a mistake? One person says it was a mistake. Well done, Robert. I think that's Robert back there sitting in the sun. Huh? Excuse me? Is that Ray? No, it's Robert. It's Robert, right? Oh, Ray did too? Okay, I'm sorry. Missed that. All right, very good. You know, I, I, I would say, you know, I, I take the Apostle Paul's side in all three instances. Acts 15, Acts 20, Acts 21. I just do. And uh, although the Bible doesn't say he was wrong, the Bible doesn't necessarily say he was right. But let's read Romans seven fourteen to 25. I want to talk about what I know the Apostle Paul was given second chance after second chance after chance, after chance, after chance, and his story is our story. So Romans seven fourteen to 25, can we put it up there? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For, for, for what I will to do, that what I desire to do or want to do, That I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. What? What I hate, that I do. You ever end up doing something in disobedience and you didn't want to? I mean, the Spirit of God, you know, you you feel so bad that you did it, but there was a draw to it, but you did it, and you're all convicted and grieved. It goes on. Verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, that's the problem right there, flesh, if you, if you take, if you, if you just pronounce it backwards, take off the uh, H and pronounce it backwards, what do you got? 
self. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Schizophrenic, right there. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law or a principle that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. That would be the spirit of God. But I see another law or principle in my members or my flesh, warring against the law of my mind or the spirit of God within me and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind or the inner self that's been quickened by the Holy Spirit, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Well, that's the Apostle Paul's testimony. This great battle, the flesh warring against the spirit, the spirit warring against the flesh, The Bible says, make no provision for the flesh that you should obey the lust thereof. The Bible warns about the the battle that wars against the soul, right? It does. And if you're a Christian, you have felt this very battle, this temptation towards sin, this seemingly downward pull that is still present In you, even though you're a Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, declared righteous by faith, and made righteous. Matter of fact, if you're a Christian, you have literally holy affections. You actually have godly desires on the inside of you. You want to please God. You have desires for his word. You want to be righteous. You want to live in victory. But at the same time, there's flesh. And in that flesh, your fallen humanness, the Bible says, is this sin, this downward pull. And even though you're saved, you still have this downward pull. And something within you responds to temptation so that you end up sinning against God because there's something in you that wanted that, but then there's something also on the inside of you that hated the fact that you did that. It's schizophrenic. And Paul is talking about his life here, and... God forgave him, restored him, discipled him, matured him, worked on him, used him, 
over and over and over and over again. And he'll do the same for you. This isn't a license to sin or an encouragement to sin because the Apostle Paul hated when he sinned and longed for righteousness, and so also should we. Am I right about that? We don't want to do it, but yet there's something in us that, you know, sin is there and lust conceives. I'm convinced we sin because there's a desire for it, a pleasure in it that we're drawn to. But at the same time, we're drawn to righteousness and godliness and holiness, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's get into this a little bit here. Paul struggled with the desires of the flesh. This is real schizophrenia, isn't it? The real deal. This is not psychological. It's not artificial. It's not trumped up. It's not imaginary. It's reality. This is a very poignant poignant description of somebody who cares deeply about the word of God, cares deeply about scripture, who cares deeply about God's righteous law. This is about somebody who desires greatly to obey the law, live that law, but is disappointed with himself or herself because in spite of what this person desires, he is pulled and pushed away from that which he wants to do into the very thing that he hates. It is the personal conflict of the soul in turmoil, and the conflict is real. It is so intense and so strong that it dominates the life of Paul, and it dominates our lives also. Talking about this constant conflict, dominates our lives. We as believers are not any longer dominated by sin, nor are we, in all honesty, dominated by righteousness. We are rather dominated by a conflict, a very intense one. You're appetites, the appetites of the flesh, because of the fallen humanness of ourselves, our appetites become sinful desires. All that is in the world, First John talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Passions, possessions, position. We're just drawn to that, drawn to that. And uh, we're drawn from it from something within, within us, within our flesh. Sin is present with me. Now, Paul's not talking about dualism, which the Greeks believed in, this idea of spirit is good and flesh is evil. And there's dualism there so that, you know, your spirit... All that matters is your spirits, and your flesh doesn't matter. Therefore, you can engage in all kinds of wickedness because uh, it's separate from your spirit. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this principle, this tendency, this propensity to sin because even though we're saved, we're still saved, and we have this flesh, this flesh. It's tendency. You know, one day, we won't. It's called heaven. We'll get a glorified body. And no longer will we be tempted or enticed to sin. But 
right now, even though we're saved and the Holy Spirit is on the inside of us and we're new creations of Christ and we actually have a brand new nature, we actually have holy, godly desires, there's something in us that the de- when the devil comes or when temptation rises that can get a hook in us sometimes and draw us away and we engage in it. That's why it's so important where Jesus was not sinful. He did not have a sinful nature. He says, the devil comes and finds nothing in me. That's amazing, isn't it? There's nothing in me. Jesus did not have the same thing in him that we have in us because he was not fallen. He did not have fallen flesh. His father was God. His mother was Mary. He was God and man. He was the holy son of God. He was able to overcome sin by the power of the Holy Spirit and also by the power of a holy divine nature that was never fallen like ours is. Praise God, right? That's good stuff. That's good stuff. And I know as as I talk about this struggle, I know that you have this struggle. If the Apostle Paul did, we all do, right? Paul experienced this inner war. This is what it says in verse 15. For what am I doing? I do not understand. You know, why did I do that? For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. What I will to do or desire to do, you know, to serve God, obey God, be right before the Lord, live a victorious life, honor God with my life, overcome sin. That's, that's my desire. That's why, but I don't do that. And I end up doing the thing that this inner man that has been uh, quickened by the Holy Spirit hates it. I end up doing what I, what I hate. The Bible says to hate evil. And uh, the Spirit of God within you has given you a hatred of evil or sin. And you end up being enticed because of your flesh. And you end up choosing that sin. And all of a sudden conviction comes. And you hate the fact that you did it. And why do you hate the fact that you did it? Because you're saved. That's why. The Holy Spirit's on the inside of you. And you have these competing desires. You can sow to the spirit or you can sow to the flesh, right? In verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Verse 23, I see another law in my members warring against, there's that warfare, the law of my mind. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. This describes the experience of all Christians struggling against sin or trying to obey God's commandments without the Holy Spirit's power. Every Christian still lives with flesh. Your flesh is your old self. You still have a downward pull, a desire to sin that is part of your flesh. When you get to heaven, you will receive a glorified body void of an appetite for sin. Praise God. If I could sum it up, I would say this. Every true Christian 
Every person who has been genuinely saved has been given an imperishable, incorruptible new life by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God, which itself cannot die. Not only can it not die, but all its impulses and all of its longings and all of its desires are holy, righteous, and pure. We're not talking now about imputed righteousness. That's a different issue. We're talking about real righteousness. We are both of these. In other words, imputed righteousness is God declaring you righteous when you believe. Practical righteousness is God, by his spirit, makes you righteous to where you can live a righteous life. He not only just says you're righteous because of faith, he puts in you his spirit, making you a new creation, giving you holy affections so you can now live an actual godly righteous life. You have been declared righteous and you now can live righteously. Everybody understand that? Praise the Lord. We're talking about real righteousness. We are both of these. We are sons of Adam and sons of God. Both births are at work in us, and we live in the tension of that conflict. But only believers live in that conflict because only believers have holy longings. And so that's the truth, isn't it? When you are, let me ask you this Will you sin less as you mature in Christ? The answer to that is yes but you will hate it more. Matter of fact, as you mature in Christ, you become more aware of your sins because you are closer to Christ. His word is at work in you. Your conscience has been taught by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit to to be sensitive to sin. Therefore, the, more, the longer you walk with Jesus, become more like Jesus, more righteous in your daily walk, the more you are aware of thoughts, attitudes, motives that are not right with God, and it actually grieves you more. I remember I was listening to Chuck Swindoll. This is years ago. I was driving down to WMUZ to take my radio broadcast, and he had a, a, a daily program, and I was just listening to him, his daily program, and he was talking about whether it's more challenging the longer you serve the Lord to follow God, or is it more challenging when you first get saved to follow God? He said something very interesting. He says, you know, I think it's, it becomes more challenging the longer you walk with God to serve the Lord because the work of God goes deeper and more inward. You know, when I, when I first got saved, uh, he delivered me from cursing, from smoking pot, from wanting to have long hair, from listening to rock and roll music. I mean, I would say those are the initial things God dealt with me. And he cleaned me up pretty quick. But as I walked with the Lord, man, he, he is still dealing with me about intents of the heart, motives, thoughts, attitudes, that I remember first saved. I mean, he wasn't really dealing with with me much of that because he had so much of that other stuff that he needed to clean up, right? And he did. And it seemed to drop away pretty quick. But boy, the longer I walk with the Lord, God, you know, I'm not going to let you get away with that. No, 
nope, stop it, nope, nope. And, uh, you know, he deals more deeper and more inward the longer you walk with the Lord. I mean, he doesn't have to deal with me cursing. I can't remember the last time I cursed. It's probably the day I got baptized in the Holy Spirit was the last time I cursed. But, boy, he deals with me about all these other issues all the time. And it's a lot harder for me to overcome some of these other things than it was cursing and swearing. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Does that make sense to you? Paul experienced victory by the power of God. These two complexes in him, righteousness on the one hand, sin on the other, are contradictory. And the more sensitive he is to the demands of God's law and the demands of Scripture and the demands of God's holiness and righteousness, the more he will see the contradiction existing within himself. The more he grows in grace, the more sanctified this person becomes, the more painful it is for him to see what he really is in spite of what he wants. That's why he breaks forth in verse 24, wretched man that I am. This is an honest expression of pain over the inability to fulfill your deepest longings. This can occur only in a believer. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. Learning to walk in the Spirit and the power of the Spirit is the key to victory over sin. Being saved does not mean you will no longer have the desires of the flesh. Don't feed the flesh so to the Spirit. So to the Spirit. All right, so we see, well, we don't think of the Apostle Paul as the type of person that was given chance after chance after chance after chance after chance, but he was. And so are we. And I'm not talking about the Apostle Paul having moral failure, uh, like, like a David did or like a Samson. He certainly didn't have that. But he did struggle with this downward pull that he would succumb to. Then he'd have to go to the Lord and say, oh, God, forgive me. And it was a real battle on the inside. He, he didn't want to sin, but he found himself sinning. He wanted to serve God, but he, he didn't to the level that he wanted to. And uh, he would cry out to the Lord, I, I delight in the law of God in the inner man. I want to serve the Lord. I, I want to be pleasing to the Lord. But I see another law in my flesh pulling me down. And I give in to that. Oh, my gosh. Lord, help me. And thank God he does. Thank God he does. We all fall short. Every single day we fall short. How many of you lived completely, fully to the glory of God today in every thought, word, and action? Of course you didn't. But that's a command. Of course you fell short. And God gives you a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. It works in you by his Holy Spirit. And uh, am I right about this? Oh, yeah. Right about this. All right. We have uh, 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 a couple minutes for some questions or comments if you want to make them. I'll let, it's a complicated passage of Scripture. Uh, I, I understand that. But uh, I tried to. That's why I read some stuff, you know, to make sure I'm saying it the right way. Go ahead, Tom.
Okay, so uh, yes, his, his first failure, if I'm hearing you right, is, uh, you know, Paul, Paul was a Pharisee. He wasn't a true believer in Christ, but boy, he was zealous of the law, and he sought to please God through the law, and of course, God wonderfully saved him. Yes, I totally agree with that. God gave him a chance and uh, salvation. And if you're a believer tonight, you know, old things have passed away. <laughs> Aren't you glad for that? And all things have become new when you come to Jesus. Praise the Lord. He wipes that slate clean. Clean. Praise the Lord. Anybody else have a question or comment? Yes. Okay, it's very good. She talks about King Hezekiah, who had a sickness unto death. The Lord sent a prophet saying, you know, you're going to die. Uh, Hezekiah called out on the Lord with bitter tears, and God gave him 15 more years. And God did that. God did that. And you know what? God, in those extra 15 years, he blew it. He entertained the Babylonians because pride came into his heart. And then God sent a prophet and said, because you did that, the Babylonians are going to invade Judah and carry him away captive. <laughs> but he did give him a second chance. And a third chance and a fourth chance, I'm sure about that as well. A- any other questions? Any other questions or comments? All right, so I want to I leave you with an encouragement. You know, as we are just talking about this battle it's, we almost feel like we're schizophrenic sometimes. Uh, you know, oh, Lord, I love you. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, I want to please you. Oh, Lord, help me, you know. Uh, and uh, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. Uh, you're not abnormal if that is happening. The Bible says that happens. But I want to encourage you to seek God, walk in the Spirit, grow in Christ, respond to God, Want and desire a life of holiness. If you fail or falter, seek God's forgiveness. He'll forgive you. He will. Amen? He'll forgive you. All right. Let's bow our heads in the presence of the Lord. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would have godly desires. That we would want you more. That we would long for righteousness, and true holiness, that we would want to please you. And, oh, Lord, those times when we fall short and give in to that sin, God, help us, forgive us, and wash us whiter than snow. And, Lord, be gracious unto us. We might fall seven times, But, oh, Lord, uphold us, stand us up back on our feet. It's the purpose of our heart put there by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to please you. And all God's people said yes and amen. All right, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.